another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a major guest for me, Rachel Goswell of the legendary band Slow Dive, Mojave 3, and, and, and more. We talked about some earlier stuff. Anyway, we'll get to all that in one second. But first, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address, turnoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. There's also a Facebook page. Both of those are run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, as illustrated by this week, Tristan Abraham. Tristan, thank you so much, buddy. I love you so much for that. If you're looking for me on social media, you can find me at Damien. If you'd like to support the show, the best way of doing that is by telling all your friends, letting everyone know that you enjoy this podcast or rating it or reviewing it on your platform of choice. And speaking of support, this podcast would not be possible without the kind, loving support of my my friends and family at Vans. These people came on board a couple years ago and said, do what you do, Damien. Make this weird-ass podcast that, that you know, just, just is its own thing. And we just want you to keep doing it. So they came on board, supported this thing, and I am grateful for them. I've got some great road trips this summer coming up because of that. More details on that in the near future. But in the meantime... Check out House of Vans for some amazing events happening in Chicago. They've got some other pop-up events happening in other places. But yeah, check out House of Vans for more information about all of that good stuff. Speaking of good stuff, The Wrestlers has wrapped up on TV. Hopefully you checked it out. If not, you can find it on demand. Go to viceland.com to find out more details. Starting airing in the UK on July 17th, so in a couple weeks. So we can talk about that, all my friends in the UK. It's going to be airing in Canada, more places. And uh, yeah, I'm just really stoked that people are finally seeing it. Long-time listeners of this podcast know how many years this thing took to come to fruition. So now it's here and I am eternally grateful. So thank you. Thank you, everyone who's checked it out and written me to say they enjoyed it. I, I am flabbergasted. You know, I, I knew people would like it. I knew it. You heard me talk about it here. I knew people would like it, but oh, it still makes me feel good. It still makes me feel good to do right by my fellow wrestling fans and, and by wrestlers for that thing. But anyway, check that out, please. Speaking of checking things out, today on the show, you're going to be checking out an amazing interview with Rachel Goswell. Now, this is someone who I've been a fan of slow dive for a very long time. I tell, I go into a lot of embarrassing detail about myself in this episode, but you will hear the story about how I got into slow dive later on on the show. But this is a band that, you know, at, at a time got labeled shoegaze as a derogatory kind of put down towards them. And over time, went on to show all those critics just how wrong they were because they created this genre. Like they are really one of the the key architects for this shoegaze sound that now, well, it's obviously a huge part of punk rock and hardcore now, indie rock, all sorts of places this thing shows up. And it, you trace it back to Slow Dive. Now, Rachel is someone who, um, you know, like I think came on the show identifying as a punk rocker, but also identifying as a goth rocker. So we get into a lot of different territory than we've gotten into on this show before. And I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm just happy I got to nerd out with someone I'm a huge fan of. So that's it. I'm not going to blather on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Rachel Goswell on Turned Out a Punk. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Well, as I was just telling you off air, I'm a, a massive fan of your work and really, really am excited to nerd out with you about some of the some of the early stuff you did. But I got to start this off the way I start them all off, which is, Rachel, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Um, yeah, that would have been through my brother um, when I was probably, I think, probably the age of 14 for me. So 1985, um, my brother... Uh, loved Susie and the Banshees really and um that that was kind of my introduction and and was the mainstay for me listening wise for a few years after that I absolutely fell in love with them and um Susie in particular was you know very I iconic um 
for me and kind of it was through listening to her and, and seeing her perform that I I mean I, I had already at that point wanted to be a singer anyway but I think she kind of kind of just g'd me on in a you know in a way um I just thought she was fantastic everything about her and loved the music and yeah that was that was kind of it do you remember the first record of hers you heard? It was Tinderbox. Oh yeah, what a great record! Yeah, yeah, that was it. And actually, occasionally, I still listen to that. Sometimes <laughs> I go back to it. And think, oh, I just fancy fancy listening to a bit. And um, you know, I, I I kind of I think from that album, then I kind of went sort of further back um, into their their history and. You know, I've got a lot of stuff on vinyl and a lot of seven inches as well, actually. Um, and obviously then, back then, you didn't have the internet or anything. So you would just to you just rely on seeing stuff on TV. Um, and at, at that point in the mid 80s, they were, you know, they were obviously very active. And, and uh, they made it on to Top of the Pops here when they did, um, I think, a few times, but... Mm-hmm when they covered this wheels on fire i always thought it was quite funny that she said later on that if she'd realized it was a, if she'd known it was like a violent track she never would have done it which <laughs> <laughs> i thought was quite funny i was thinking well you say that but actually it was a massive hit <laughs> it was a massive massive hit for them and um yeah they were kind of on everything on like all the music programs yeah it's it's funny because like you know she doesn't really get talked about you know in the same you'd expect like for how massively important you know her music was she'd be talked about a lot more these days. Yeah, she's yeah. I often wonder like how she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I wonder how she's she's doing because she must be what probably sixty now. I, I would imagine mm-hmm. we'll get close to that. And um, yeah, you don't. I mean, she hasn't been in the public eye for, for quite for quite a while now. I think she popped up maybe in maybe three years ago or something, but um, three four years ago. But I haven't really seen anything since. So, um, and, it's, well, and it's also they yeah. just define such an aesthetic, or she, she or sorry, she defines such an aesthetic. You know, like that whole, you know, you don't really hear Susie and the Banshees talked about as like the inventors of goth, but they were kind of like the inventors of goth. Yeah, I guess they were in a way, weren't they? I mean, there were a lot of bands around at that, that period. Mm-hmm. Obviously, like, the Sisters of Mercy and, um, gosh, I mean, you could go into bands. Well, even <laughs> like the Cure and I... stuff like that too, I guess. Well, yeah, yeah, the Cure as well. And then you had kind of the kind of, I don't know, the more hardcore stuff like uh, Christian Death yes. and Alien Sex. Fiend and Skeletal Family, all bands that I, you know, for for a period of time I absolutely loved. And Fields of the Nephilim. Uh, me and Nick in the band used to because he was he was the only other goth I knew really. Mm-hmm. Um, we we lived in Reading, which is like west of London, about thirty miles away. And um, but we used to go up to London together to to goth gigs basically, and we <laughs> we used to go down right down the front. Yeah, into the gig, straight down the front, and just stay there. So I've actually got like some some great photographs. I've got some fantastic photographs of Christian Death um, at the Marquee Club in London, which are brilliant because it's all down oh, that's the front. Awesome. And I, yeah, yeah, and I can't remember what year that was. Maybe 1988, 87, probably 88. Um, but yeah, and we used to go and watch Ghost Dance. Oh, I love that well, band. Yeah, they were great. In fact, I think they've have they reformed? Have they reformed? Well, I think they might be playing again now. Oh, that's, I don't um, think they've come over here yet. No, I'm sure I've seen something on Twitter about them um, doing stuff again. Because uh, I think Nick, or I think Nick might have said something to me as well, but I haven't seen them live since back then. But but Anne Marie, I also used to to love you know she used to do um she used to do like costume changes during well not obviously on stage but mm-hmm. which was 
maybe some people do, but she used to go, she used to do costume changes at their gigs. And I actually, I don't think there's any other band I've watched that, that do that or have done that since I've seen, I know they're sure, you know, not, not for like a kind of alternative band. It's quite an unusual thing, really. Yeah, you're right. But like that to... level of stagecraft doesn't really come up too much in, in indie music or alternative music. It really doesn't. And I think she's the only woman I ever saw live that used to do that. Um, but uh, she was, you know, like post Susie after. I mean, Susie's always remained kind of my queen anyway. But, um, <laughs> you know, Anne-Marie was, um, I would say she was all, also an influence just watching her perform and, and stuff. They used to be great live. Were you a fan of the glove at all? No, no, don't know, don't really know. That was like the, anything about. Wasn't that the that Susie Robert and the Banshees, Smith. Robert Smith thing they did together? Yeah, I think you're right, but you know what? I don't think I've ever listened to it. Yeah. I'm gonna have to go and find it now. I, I, I remember yeah. being really into it, but I haven't listened to it in a number of years, so I, I think I'm going to dig it up as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. were you playing music by this point? Because this is a couple years before the Pumpkin Fairies form. Um. Yeah. Yes, I was. Yes, because Neil and I started the band in school when we were fifteen. Oh, so, so Pumpkin Fairies was it already Pumpkin Fairies at this point? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was that was our first. I think that was our first name. Yeah. Um. Yes. Yeah, so we started at school when we were fifteen. He was. Um. I went to uh, the youth wing in our school on a Sunday, and and and. Um, Neil was a prefect. Do you know what prefects are? Yes, absolutely. Like kind of like the yeah. it's almost like a student council, but of, of the older students, right? Yeah, but then the, like the teachers would choose a specific prefect to be their kind of I don't know what their right hand student, something weird. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> for each class, but, but Neil was the prefect for our youth leader in our school. Youth leader kind of took him under his wing a bit, and. Um, he would be at the like the youth club on a Sunday, just kind of there helping out with whatever. And I went there on a Sunday with my little keyboard and my friend whose name was Alison. And uh, we decided we were going to start a band. That was kind of like, like we're going to start a band. And um, so, so the, the youth club had like uh, PA speakers and a little PA. So he set those up for us. And um, I think he plugged in a guitar and just kind of, played along and none of us really knew what on earth we were doing and there weren't that many people in our school that played instruments mm-hmm. um you know and those that did were <clears throat> generally like really really in- intelligent and um, which I never saw myself as so I kind of felt slightly out of my league with some of the people that, that started playing instruments alongside me um and um so the, the following week the following Sunday I you know, went to call for Alison to go back. And um, she <laughs> she answered the door and she said, oh, I don't want to be in a band. don't want to do it. So I, so I went, very fickle at that age. <clears throat> so I went on my own and Neil was there and he'd set everything up. And we just, just started kind of playing together, really. And there were some other guys there that, that joined in, um, none of whom, apart from the drama, but the other guys that kind of messed about with didn't end up being in the Pumpkin Fairies. But Adrian was in our year at school and he drummed for us. <clears throat> and he knew Nick, a bass player who didn't go to our school. He lived somewhere else. So that's how Nick came into the band. Um, and so we were a four-piece for, for quite a while. Then, um, you know, we kind of... Neil was really into... <clears throat> stuff like Tallulah Gosh and the Primitives and things like that. Yeah. More kind of what I would have called at that point real kind of indie schmindy stuff. <laughs> Whereas I was a fully fledged goth, you know, and really wasn't into the indie schmindy stuff. So there was Nick on one side and uh, Neil and Adrian sort of on the other. And, um, you know, then the, My Bloody Valentine... Yeah, so so strawberry wine is the first one that I remembered from that from um, from them, and 
so we were a four piece for a little while, but um, kind of near, kind of got into that EP, Strawberry Wine, and decided we needed another guitar player. And at that point, I was playing keyboards in the band. And um, even though I could play guitar as well, actually, because <clears throat> I grew up, uh, did classical guitar from a really young age. And were you in like a musical uh, family? Is that why you grew up playing? Um, my my dad played music. He actually played the banjo. Oh, cool! And he and he played folk guitar. And um, he met my mum at her friend's twenty first birthday party because he was in the jazz band that was kind of hired to play. So so that's how they met. Um, so music has always been a you know a huge part of my family and and for me growing up mm-hmm. was was just huge. So when I was seven, um, he they bought me my first classical guitar and um i used to have guitar lessons in my village classical ones with my best friend's mum who also taught neoclassical guitar and that's kind of so our paths crossed at at that young age just going in and out of lessons yeah um so but i mean we weren't we weren't friends we we knew we knew each other very vaguely really and secondary through secondary school, we I think we just shared one class together, um, and uh, he was the only other person really in my year that that had any kind of alternative bone in his body, um, and was you know, I guess a bit of a a misfit like me. Even if he was in just different... an indie kid. Yeah, he was an indie kid. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I had. To... The Smiths scrawled on my biology book. We had, we were in biology class together. Um, I had the Smiths, you know, scrawled on there, and so there was kind of, um, yeah, there was kind of, a, I suppose, a bit, of, obviously, a bit of a connection there. And yeah. um, anyway, I went from classical guitar to my dad taught me like basic folk guitar. He used to sit at home and play the banjo. I used to play along on the guitar. Then I bought my first electric guitar when I was thirteen with uh, paper round money for £30. I still have that guitar. It's terrible, um, but quite funny. And then I kind of, then I, and I'd learned to, I did theory of music as well for a few years. And I, so I learned how to read music and um, I got, I got, you know, by the age of 14, I got bored with the classical guitar and I gave it up. And then I was like, oh, I want to, I want to learn the piano now and I want to learn how to read the bass clef. I only wanted to learn how to read the bass clef and that's all I really cared about. So I only did two grades in piano and then got bored of that and gave that up as well. <laughs> and then, like, then parents bought me a, a Yamaha DX27 synth. Um, and, and I had, I had keyboard lessons in Reading. And, um, so that's kind of what, yeah, I mean, that's what I started doing in the band. I played keys. Uh, this is all really long winded, but, um, that's what yeah. this podcast is all about, believe me. There's nothing too long-winded for this podcast when we're talking about music. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Yeah, no, this so, is a uh, safe space to nerd out as much as possible. Oh, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Um, so then, yeah, so then we did like the youth, youth wing thing for a bit and and Strawberry Wine had come to our attention and Neil was like, oh, we need another guitar player. We need another guitar player. And so we advertised and we advertised for a woman a female actually so it'd be good to have another girl in the band like you know my bloody valentine had two girls two boys even it out a bit and christian was the only person that replied (laughs) and said he would be happy to wear a dress if that's what he had to do because he'd seen us play around reading a little bit you know we did the old gig here and there Mm -hmm. um and uh and and that was it you know and he joined and i'm not I can't really remember at what point I switched over back to playing the guitar again at some point. Because you don't um, play the guitar on the first demo, right? I no, I don't. No, that... too, right? Um, which demo? Pumpkin Fairies? The one that actually, yeah, the Pumpkin Fairies, the Pumpkin Fairies self-titled demo. Gosh, what's on that one? Uh, it's got the Velvet Underground cover on it, and it's um, Everything You Breathe. Uh, oh, yeah. It's a really rare tape. Like there's, it's like uh, there's only a few songs that I've heard because there's only a few songs that are kind of like leaked out from it. But uh, the stuff I've heard on it is fantastic. 
Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm not playing guitar on that. Christian's on that, though. I'm pretty sure he must be. He wasn't listed on it. It's listed only as a four. Was piece. He? Oh, oh, well, then maybe that's pre. Well, that must be pre-Christian then. Yeah, there's I, a second tape, "Love Me," which he might play on. I don't know the credits on that one. Yeah, that's that'll be Christian. I didn't play guitar on that. I definitely didn't play guitar on those. That would be Christian. So yeah, "Love Me" and um, Jesus yes, because and September Chills. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Christian was definitely in the band at that point. Okay. Because and you can you can hear with that song "Love Me" that the heavy "My Bloody Valentine" influence. I think, I think it's there. That's when it kind of they started influencing us. And Christian was, um, you know, they were like his favorite band. Mm-hmm. And uh, Cocteau Twins and I, I used to have quite a lot of pen pals when I was a teenager I used to love writing letters and um and somebody I don't I can't even remember who somebody sent me a cassette tape of uh Treasure by the Cocteau Twins that was I think that was when I was 15 and I'd never heard anything like it mm. you know just completely blew me away and I just used to always put that on my headphones when I was in bed to drift off to sleep um yeah, it's really funny. It, uh, so those those influences were coming in. It makes perfect sense that you know, the, going back to I guess when the Pumpkin Fairies were just forming, that you know you were into goth and Neil was into indie because it really explains the sound of that band. Like it has such a, a heavy kind of goth overtone to it, but it is you know definitely that that kind of indie side of it's leaking through. Yeah, yeah. Neil definitely was not into goth. <laughs> <laughs> He did like The Cure, though, to be fair. He did like The Cure, but he didn't like any of the rest of it. Yeah. I guess there's some bridge bands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know. What was the scene it, it like in writing at the time that you were playing out at first? Oh, gosh. Now you're taking me back. I can't really remember, to be honest. And there, it was quite a healthy music scene. I think there were, there were quite a lot of bands playing around. Um, if you asked me to name any of those bands, I would struggle <laughs> uh, to remember any of their names. There was a band called the Colour Mary that we did like. And um, when Adrian, our original drummer, when we when we signed to Creation, mm-hmm. we, were, we were 18. and But it was at the point that Adrian was just about to go to university and he... he but, but he came to the meeting with us to meet Alan McGee because Alan came down to Reading to meet with us because he wanted to put Slow Dive and Avalyn out. And Adrian just sat and going, ah, nah, nah, I need to go to university. I don't want to do this. Mm. And I remember Alan just laughed at him going, what do you mean don't want to be in a rock and roll band? <laughs> and Adrian was like, no. I need to go to uni. And to Adrian's credit, you know, he's had a very – successful career um ever since <laughs> there's a lot of like charity based work but you know he's done really well over the years and um so this band the color mary we liked mm-hmm. the drummer neil in that i think maybe they they must have split up because we were looking for another drummer and then uh this guy neil stepped in and he drums on the morning rise ep um, and there are some like early press shots where Neil is in those photos. He was a bit older than us. Okay. Um, and Adrian was on the first EP, but we never had the press shots we had done. Didn't. Yeah, I did. Yeah, didn't include him. Obviously, they would have had Neil in because he'd left before they ca- that came out. Um, it's a bit final tap with the drummer thing. It's a slow dive, I think. How did Alan uh, McGee find out about you? Was it just from playing around or was he familiar with the Pumpkin Fairies? Or um, So we, um, there was a club called the After Dark Club in Reading where all the bands used to come and play. And um, do you remember a band called 530? Oh, yeah, I've heard of that band, absolutely. Yeah, they used to have Alistair Crowley's door on stage at one point. <laughs> that is yeah, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, they're like a three-piece band. But um, basically, we them. And during our sound check, 
they said to us, like, have you got any, uh, you know, demos? And I was like, oh, well, yeah, we do. And we'd just done the Slow Dive and Avalon one. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have any of So I had to run home to get a cassette of this demo with Slow Dive and Avalon on. Because they were like, oh, yeah, we've got, you know, we've got some A&R people coming down tonight. I'm like, okay. And uh, there was a guy that came to the, the gig called Steve Walters who worked for EMI Publishing. Um, and he saw our set and he loved us. And he was friends with Alan. And so I gave him a cassette and then, you know, the next day, Alan McGee's on the phone. (laughs) And Neil and I were living together at that point. So he phoned us up and Neil answered. He's like, Alan McGee on the phone. And Alan was like going, I love your demo. I want to put it out. And it it was like that. And then then he came to meet us and we're like, okay, let's do this. And uh, (laughs) it's all really quite surreal. Yeah, and um, then they gave us some money to go into a proper studio to try and re-record Slow Dive and Avalyn, but it didn't. It just lost the atmosphere that the original demo had. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went with the original demo, and that's what was released. That must yeah. have been surreal, right? Like you know, being my bloody Valentine's fans. I don't. I guess you weren't as much a fan of the pastels, but like you know, that was such a such like a force well, in indie music at the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Neil was a massive Pastels fan. Yeah. Huge. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that band. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, no, it, it was it was huge because Creation was the label. Mm-hmm. They were the label, simply. It was, you know, and it was like, oh, my God, like the best label in the universe wants to put our music out. And, you know, I loved Primal Scream as well. Um Teenage Fan Club, so many good bands on Creation. Um, Mary, the Jesus and Mary Chain, you know, again were an influence on us, that kind of era. So yeah, it was it was mind blowing for us. This, this group of people from Reading, Neil had taken a year out. He, you know, his dad had wanted him to go to a university, but he. He de- he didn't he decided to take a year out to concentrate on music. He's like, I want to do music, which didn't go down well, actually. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, that's that's what he did. And I had like a little job as a print finisher um, locally, so I was working. And Neil was, yeah, literally just taking had just said to his family, I'm taking a year off, and he was working in Wimpy, I think. Um, well, it kind of worked um, out. It, it worked out, it luckily. Worked out. Yeah. It worked out really well. Well, yeah. it's like when you're talking about creation, like obviously, you know, Slow Dive included in this, but like it's just amazing. And there were a couple labels like this, but at that time period, just the level of curation where labels were going out and just finding all these bands. And now when you look back, it's just like hit after hit of amazing bands like creation. It's like just how many classic bands, classic albums came out of just one label at that time. I know. Yeah, I know. It's great. Yeah. Did Were yeah. you already playing in part of like a scene at that point or did when you signed a creation, you like were then you kind of put into a scene that you were playing in? Like how, what was like sort of the live, you know, like playing out? Like had you started touring, I guess at this point even? Only no, we'd only really done gigs around Reading. We played a lot around Reading, and we did a handful of gigs in London. Mm-hmm. And at, at one pub in London, we actually had to pay to play, which, looking back on it, is insane. And I think that some some nasty places still do that to yep. bands, but yeah, um, they definitely still do for some gross reason. Yeah, I think it was maybe the Half Moon in Putney or something we paid to play there. And it was a bit like, mm, what are we doing? Well, fuck the Half um, Moon. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, the I mean, the only other band in Reading at, at that point was um, Chapter House. Um, you know, and they were, I mean, they were like friends of ours. I, the, the drummer, Ashley... I met him at college after I left school. We had some classes together and my first boyfriend was his best mate, actually. Um, 
and that's how I met Ashley and through and you know I for like a couple of years Ashley's an, an incredible talent musically I mean I an amazing guitarist and when he joined chapter house as a drummer i was like what are you doing why are you playing drums you're such a good guitarist you're wasted being a drummer um i'm sure lots of drummers now will be listening taking massive offense to that statement but at that point you know that that's kind of what i felt about yeah. ashley yeah um, and but, but you know i met ashley through college and uh a woman called emma who to this day is um, my best friend actually but she was going out with Stephen who was a guitar player in Chapter House and, and she was a goth as well Stephen was a bit of a goth and there were two it was just like our social scene was around those guys um, and so we would do gigs together occasionally and they were the only kind of band really of interest and you know they, they were kind of quite really in the early days Chapter House were very very much like Iggy and the Stooges kind of a um and I loved them I absolutely loved them they were so gritty and so good to watch live and they signed to Dedicated Records around the same time we signed to Creation actually so we were kind of like rising at the same time so to speak yeah but I guess like you know you're the slow dive kind of shapes a genre in its wake and I guess Chapter House didn't really do that in the same way no, they kind of went off on a like a dance tangent, yeah. really, and and you know things just sort of fell apart a bit for them. I wish they sounded like the yeah. Stooges on some of those later records. That'd be awesome. Well, yeah, I mean they were great. Yeah, the early EPs are fantastic, and um, still love that first record. It's good as well. It feels like it was very, um, you know, like now it seems like it's changed, but like back then and and even later on, obviously too, it, it felt like it was very faction like if you were a goth kid you hung out with other goth kids and if you were this type of kid you hung out with this type of kid like it felt like you had to kind of like uh, almost like form like a a clique or a tribe yeah but I, I think you just naturally gravitate to those people around you that that share the same you know aesthetics really and um, when I went to college I suddenly found loads of goths and it's like, wow, this is great. There's, there are other people like me. Well, I knew there were other people like me out there. Yeah. But they weren't in my village. <laughs> but when I went to college, and I only went there for a year to appease my parents who were like, you know, because I, I came out of school with uh, my two English O-levels and my art O-level and failed everything else miserably, really. And I, I hated school with mm -hmm. a passion. I hated education. I, I was only interested in music and art. And English, I suppose. Um, so I went to college under duress, um, like severe duress and, uh, you know, to try and get some more qualifications. But then I met my first boyfriend, who I mentioned earlier, and ended up bunking off the entire year pretty much and, again, failed all my exams. I don't think some of them I didn't even bother going to. But the college never told my parents <laughs> until after <laughs> I'd left. My parents were absolutely livid. They were furious with me. <clears throat> they were like, they they had a two-week holiday to Turkey booked. I remember it so well. My dad was like, you better get a job. You better get a job by the time we get back or you're in trouble. <clears throat> and um, I did. I, I, so, so I went out and got a job. They came back. I was like, I've got a job, Dad. And um, I left home not long after that, you know, when I was 18. I flew the coop. So, yeah. It's, it's funny because I'm, I'm, I'm a parent now and like I look at my kids, you know, and you, 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 you want them to do certain things. You're like, well, this is what I have to do to set you on the right path. But like here you are, you know, like not following the path your parents set out for you, but instead following your own path and, you know, becoming a legend in music because of it. Like, you know, like <laughs> if you had been stuck going to school, like who knows what you'd be doing now. But like, you know, we wouldn't have as many great records. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the thing was with my dad, he always encouraged me with music. And, you know, obviously they they encouraged me to learn these instruments and nurtured me in that respect because they could see that that was where my passion was. But I think when it got to the age of leaving school, I think my my dad was, was really worried 
about what I was going to do to earn a living. He was like, you know, you you need to have a proper job. You can't rely on music. And uh, so that, you know, that did cause a bit of friction. I was, I was a bit like, but you've always encouraged me to do this. And this is what I love. Yeah, but you need to be sensible. And um, and then obviously I ended up very luckily. We had that creation deal. But, you know, I mean, I've worked I've worked day jobs in between things over the years. So, you know, it's it's not the easiest path being. Well, I think any any kind of creative industry is probably very difficult and similar things apply to all of them absolutely um, absolutely writing think... art whatever so yeah well, it's not an easy one to do i think like yeah, as a parent like you don't you know you, you're doing this because you want your child to have the best life possible and you're like i want you to make sure you have a you know like you're saying like a secure future but at the same time yeah. it's just like you can't make someone you know, resist their destiny. It feels like, you know, like they're going to do what they're going to do. And and also you, I think you really, if you're that passionate about something, you, you can't, you have to take risks with it and, and just, and you also do have to go for it because if you just go and do like a safe job and that's all you do, then you'll always be, well, what if, Mm -hmm. what if I more attention to that? that creative side i think yeah it, it is it is really hard but it is so important to nurture whatever whatever it is that that your your kid has a passion for that's what you have to nurture and, and encourage but it is yes yeah, difficult as a parent really difficult oh it's difficult yeah you just you don't know if you're going to screw them up more or if you're going to put them on the right path with every decision you make no, but you know what? And also to my parents' credit, they were financially bailing me out till I was about 27, I have to say. <laughs> creation. And uh, being this, you know, this girl in a band that was releasing records, we really didn't have much money. And I've lost count of the, the amount of times my parents paid my rent or just helped me when I was, like, really, really skint. And I think at one point I was sort of saying, oh, I think I might have to move back home. You know, I just can't afford, I can't afford to uh, stay in London anymore. And everything's really difficult. They were like, no, you can't move back home. (laughs) We don't want you to. (laughs) We'll we'll pay you rent for a couple of months until you sort yourself out. So, you know, they 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 were, I'm lucky that they were in a position to be able to do that. And they, they both worked very hard all their lives. Um, yeah, it was kind of lucky, but but I kind of felt like I, I maybe only became a proper adult when I was when after you know that age, twenty seven, when when I stopped asking them to help me out financially and stood on my own two feet. <laughs> so I'm like my, but it's true. <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's when you uh, you know that's I guess, but it takes that long before a band becomes profitable like even if a band's legendary it doesn't mean that everyone's able to live off it at that point yeah i think like the very early days of slow dog we did live off it because we had a publishing deal with the mi and um we had like a, a wage of 100 pounds a week with slow dive from our advances but you know by the time souflaki was finished we had no money left and um pygmalion was finished it was ready a year before it was released so I, I did go and get a, a job mm-hmm. and uh, and actually for the next few years throughout Mojave 3 for the majority of time in that band with all those releases I also worked a day job and I would take unpaid leave to do gigs yeah well, um, that's it's, the reality of it. it's the reality of art right like it, it yeah and it's it's only with slow dive coming back um, that actually we've made enough money to not have to do day jobs mm-hmm. for the you know, and properly and that that is an amazing thing and it's like wow God I wish this has happened <laughs> in some ways maybe we wouldn't have appreciated it so much then but um, yeah it's only in since we've come back that it, it's actually been uh, <clears throat> you know a band that, that can survive actually just doing music. So, mm-hmm. yeah, what, a long time to get there. What 
what did take Pygmalion all that time to come out? Um, I think it was, it wasn't us, it was creation. At that point, they were signing that deal with Sony. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the ins and outs, but it would have been to do with Sony, I think, and all the stuff that was going on with the label then. And, you know, Alan wasn't, Alan was in rehab and he wasn't well, la-di-da, all that stuff. So that's why it was delayed. And also, I mean, they... You know, to their credit, they did put the record out in the end, but they didn't like it. Um, they didn't like it. Alan didn't like it. Didn't really understand it. It was just so, I guess, so different to the, to Suf- I mean, poles apart from Suflaki, obviously. Yeah. Um, it was kind of a, like, we we knew that, we knew that they would drop us after that record came out, you know, because I think we, I think we possibly... I don't know whether it was a three or a four album deal we signed with them, but obviously after each record they had the option whether to pick us up or not. And we knew with Pygmalion that they would not pick us up. But, I mean, we kind of knew by Souflaki that nobody there, that very few people at the label cared about Slow Dive by that point. Or, you know, they'd moved on. Nobody really, yeah, nobody really cared. So, And we were fully aware of that. And um, we'd been kind of farmed off to <clears throat> SBK in the States, um, which was a disaster, you know, a creation licensed, I think the first two records to them. And it, it's just, just like a major label and they, they didn't have, know what on earth to do with us, really. Um, so, yeah, there, it was just a lot of a lot of mess and everything was completely outside our control we just had to kind of get on with whatever we could get really at that point <laughs> well i guess did, yeah. did it change when that sony deal happened like is that when things really started to change or it was it changing before that even i think it was changing before that yeah but uh, but i think it coincided with with alan not being well yeah you know and uh dick green was was um well to our eyes looking in with with the, the person running the label and he was like the businessman holding everything together and i think looking back on it, it probably had a very difficult a very difficult time and you so you had the the valentines with their infamous amount of money spent on isn't anything or was it loveless loveless yeah um loveless yeah <clears throat> so um yeah i can't remember exactly when sony got involved i just remember us being told that you know more than a half share or 51 percent or whatever or alan's share had been sold to sony and that was that i was like oh okay um and then shortly afterwards i think we we were dropped anyway and that was that were you ever approached by major labels during um when you were signing creation like was there ever uh, like other labels nope. trying to take you away or anything? Nope. <laughs> Definitely not. Mm. No. Well, no. I... I mean, the Cox Twins did, didn't they? In the House of Love. Yeah. There yeah. were some that went off majors, but I mean, they were oh, definitely more successful and, and certainly from a, a press point of view did way better than Slow Dive did. We didn't do that well with the press, obviously, in the UK. So, no, nobody... Nobody tried to poach us. Nobody cared, basically. I think it's it's safe to say. Well, also, you're you such know. a defining sound of that label. Like, when I think of that label, like, you're one of the first bands that comes to mind. Now, maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah now. Back then, definitely not. <laughs> I mean, the, band, the bands for me then were the Valentines, and the Mary Chain, and Primal Scream. Those were kind of like the bands for me, I think. Mm-hmm. when we signed and see they you know later on they had oasis and i didn't like them <clears throat> and i think alan actually asked neil um if they could support us on the pygmalion tour or something like that something weird or and neil was like nah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah later they're the biggest band in the world um so that imagine that that would have been really weird yeah that would have been really weird uh, it would have been a weird tour. Yeah. I could imagine that would have been a difficult band to have open. Yeah, 
yeah, I mean, and and how on earth you'd even think to marry the two bands up to do gigs together is beyond me, really. Um, but I mean, we did rehearse. Uh, we did rehearse, you know, songs from Pygmalion to tour for the album release, and um, and um, we got. I think we got dropped a week after the album came out. So in, yeah, in March it would have been March '94, I think. We got dropped, so uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. What did you? Uh, can... Sorry, go on. No, I was just saying, there's not much else I can say about that, really. <laughs> no. Um, when when you did get dropped, did you try and like tour on it yourselves at that point, or was there any chance of like trying to salvage the record in your in the band's eyes? No, no, no we didn't. We didn't at all. And and by that point, um, we didn't you know friendships within the band weren't great either mm -hmm. I, we'd all just were fed up with it and had had enough of each other um nick and christian particularly were i mean we had we hadn't had any money for a long time and as i said i've been working was working for the year after suplaki came out and leading up to that and um yeah so they were really really unhappy we'd run out of money we got dropped. <clears throat> the only thing that was salvageable was that we still had the deal with EMI Publishing and um, Just About, and uh, they had a, a studio in central London. And during this year that we'd been waiting for Pygmalion to be released, uh, you know, Neil had continued to write songs and was, you know, during that time was, was listening his the stuff he was listening to, to to had started to change. He was listening more to sort of Bob Dylan and Neil Young and stuff like that. And um, he's he, you know he'd said to me, "Well, I've got a bunch of songs written. Why don't we just record them and utilise the studio at EMI and see what happens?" So so we did uh, with Ian, who was our fourth drummer in Slow Dive, who was on Pygmalion, because Simon left after Suflaki. And, um, you know, with with Nick and Christian at that point, I, I remember having a conversation with one of them on the phone, just saying, well, you know, me and Neil are just going to go off and do this now. And uh, that was kind of that. And they did, they, neither of them wanted to do the band anymore. They were fed up with it. They were like, yeah, whatever, you carry on. So the early... Um, <clears throat> so the first Mojave 3 album, you know, is comprised of a lot of the demos we did at EMI, which you could argue possibly might have been a fourth slow dive album if things had been different. And it would have, you know, been very different again to a very different record again. Um, and I did um, some of the vocals. I, I remember recording the vocals for Love Songs on the radio on a mattress in the kitchen, Neil's house that he was living in, renting. There were like two kitchens there, and one of them I think wasn't used and had a mattress there, and I sat on the mattress and sang the vocals for that song. So we did some of it at his house and some of it some of it in, in Labrick Grove and then some of it um, in studio at EMI. Did it feel like there was like the pressure was off at that point? Like, did you feel like you were able to kind of be like you know you're obviously recording lying on a mattress, you're, you're physically relaxed, but did you feel more relaxed creatively? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, we we had nothing to prove at that point, did mm -hmm. we? We had no label. <laughs> we had nothing really, um, <laughs> apart from a bunch of songs that we thought were good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we just thought, well, we may as well record them. Um, and see what happens. And our manager at the time, Sherry Hood, had worked, had previously worked at 4AD, I think, and she knew Ivo really well. And she was like, well, you know, let me um, let me send the songs to Ivo and see if he's interested. And in a similar way to, to Alan McGee, you know, the previous years, Ivo heard what we'd done and he loved it. Mm -hmm. was straight back and said yes I want to put this out um, and then we had the debate of are we going to do it under the name Slow Dive or should we change the band name and we did think about it for a while because we were like well Slow Dive has got such negative connotations press wise now <clears throat> maybe we should 
and Nick and Christian have left, <clears throat> you know, maybe we should start completely afresh with this and choose a different name, different label. So that's what we did. 4AD, sorry, 4AD and, you know, under Ivo Watts and Peter, like they, they just, another label that just picked like incredible bands. Like what a, a great kind of ear for just catalog. all, yeah. And just all different kind of sounds too, from all over the place. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, we were both so excited to be on 4AD. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of like, we'd gone from like the best indie label creation that had basically fallen apart to the other best indie label 4AD that had loads of like credible bands on and those are bands we loved. So it couldn't, in that, you know, in that respect, really, it couldn't have gone any better for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the Cocteau Twins had just left 4AD when we joined. You know, I had all of their records, still do. Um, uh, Red House Painters, you know, we were massive fans of. Gosh, Dead Can Dance, Pixies. The list goes on, really, with 4AD. Oh, yeah, Bar, bar House. Like, there's just... Like a yeah, whole, yeah. Years and years of great stuff on that label. Like, it's... it's uh, Yeah, like... But was it weird having to start over? Did you feel like you were starting over? Or did you feel like this was... You know, like, once again, sonically, you're saying it could be a continuation from Slow Dive, but did it feel like, career-wise, like you were starting over again? Yeah, definitely. And and that was a, that was a good thing and a positive thing for us as well. I don't think really... <clears throat> There wasn't, you know, really any other way to do it. Um, and yes, it definitely, it definitely felt like that. And it, it was a good thing. And we had, you know, a really good working relationship with 4AD and released five albums with them over the, the course of 10 years. And, um, you know, I think they, they are a label that we were very happy on and they were very, <laughs> In complete contrast to creation, they were so well organised <laughs> with everything, and they had you know beggars banquet in in North America, and so there wasn't that whole thing of being like basically licensed off to a major label that didn't know what to do do with you. It was all kind of you know one big umbrella group that I think worked really well, and um, you know I've still got a, a lot of um, respect for them as a label. Um, and their output over the years, I think, is still a lot of great bands. Yep, I used to stay above their office when I was staying at the Beggar's Flat with my band, so they, you know, really nice to us, yeah. too, even to this day. And what was your band called? I played in a band called Fucked Up. Oh, okay. We're uh, okay. we're like a punk hardcore band, but you, you, not surprising from this conversation, I would imagine, but, like, you are definitely a big influence on our band, too. But uh, we do yeah. kind of... I don't know, I guess, like, punk hardcore with psychedelic and shoegaze kind of influences in it as well. Uh, but we were on Matador for six okay. years. But now we're on um, uh, Merge Records. Okay. Oh, cool. And stuff. But no, that's why, as I say, you're, I, I owe you a debt because you're a huge influence on me sonically, too. <laughs> <laughs> I, owe, I owe you the reason I don't have to have a, a regular job as well. So thank you for that. Welcome. <laughs> it's when I actually when I started collecting records, like when I first started buying records that were you know out of print, where you had to track them down and sometimes pay a little bit of a premium for them. Holding our breath was the first one I bought. Okay. When I was like uh, uh, you know sixteen, I went back and had to track it down because I was already like you said, Creation was already kind of fallen apart by that point, and was all these records were hard to yeah. get for a long time, and I guess that maybe led to the not maybe didn't lead to it, but it certainly, you know, caused a, a bit of a cult around your band to form. Yeah. I, well, yes, it did. But I think also, um, well, the rise of the internet, MySpace, you know, I remember mm -hmm. going on MySpace or whatever year it was and, and seeing shoegaze as a genre on there. And I was like, what? what on earth is this you know because you know the shoegaze was was coined by a journalist in this country and then it was always used in a negative way in in reviews in in the uk mm -hmm. so it was all it was always like a source of embarrassment really that tag and it was 
it was quite incredible to see it like flipped on its head and and for it to be completely changed just by by people and by time into something really positive and good. Well, how about you? Yeah, have yeah. you embraced it now? Like everyone else seems to have embraced the term, but how about yourself? Yeah, I, I yeah, I think so. I think part of me still maybe feels a little bit like it's funny but I mean it it is I guess quite a a big sort of genre absolutely (laughs) I think I think I still find it a bit funny if I'm honest I don't know (laughs) yeah it's just a bit mind-boggling um in some ways well in a lot of ways it just feels weird yeah it's you know it is great and it's obviously it's a massive compliment for, for for slow dive and um but it yeah <laughs> i don't yes yeah, it's, it's just it's it's strange but it's good it's great but it's strange well i guess then that leads to the question if there was no genre of of shoegaze like and you were in a record you were working in a record store and you had to file slow dive records where would you want to see them filed Oh my god! It would just be an indie, I suppose, indie, <laughs> or... and I don't know. Yeah, I think it's it is really hard putting labels on music. I mean, I know it is, it is hard. I yeah. mean, mind you, when you hear like sort of a goth band, you're like, oh, yeah, that's a goth band, and and we all do it, and we all label things. And the first thing anyone asks you, oh, what what do you sound like? Who do you sound like? And I always find that such a difficult question to answer and I still get asked that question by people I meet today who have no concept of what I do mm-hmm. just in everyday life they're like oh what do you do oh I'm a singer oh yeah yeah do you play locally do you yeah I'm like, play worldwide actually oh do you what kind of music is it is it rock <laughs> I'm like not really rock <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of say, yeah, it's kind of just noisy guitars, but then some of it's quite ethereal, and you can just see that the kind of blank expression on people's faces <laughs> explain what slow dive is and the concept of making a living from this music that isn't rock and uh, you know easily classifiable to the kind of general person that really isn't into music that much and doesn't care. I always find it blown away when people like are shocked that you don't play covers in a band. They're like, you don't play covers. It's like, no, we don't really have to. Yeah. There is that one as well. Yeah. I mean, obviously we do the Sid Barrett song. So we do, we do kind of one. Well, that, well then yeah, if you're going to do any cover, a Sid Barrett song is a good one to do, you know, and we do do some yeah. covers as well. Yeah. It is. It, it's fun to do the odd cover, but yeah, yeah. You, you're not like a band. You're not a pub band doing covers. Yeah. No, but I would yeah. I would kill to be in a Doctor Feelgood cover band as a side gig. <laughs> that would be good fun. It would be a fun <laughs> fun band. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Would you come back at some point in the future for a part two? I would love to. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, it thank has you. Been, I've really enjoyed it. Oh, that well, it's been an absolute <laughs> honor and a privilege to have you on the show, and and thank you for the influence and the years of music. And I, for one, am glad that you screwed up that first year of university. <laughs> That that wasn't even university. That was just college. I wasn't I wasn't uh, academic enough for uni. Well, yeah. then college. I'm glad you screwed up that college year. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Me too. <laughs> Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Rachel, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Rachel will be back for a part two in the future. Said she had a good time doing this thing, and that's. That's what I aim for. I aim to finish every one of these podcasts with a guest, with them saying, that was not as bad as I thought it would be, you know, or, or I enjoyed it. You know, if they enjoyed it even better, but I don't want it to be worse than they thought it was going to be. There's been a couple where I think it's worse than they thought it was going to be, but you know what? Fuck those guests. We're not worried about those guests. We're worried about the guests that did have a good time. Speaking of having a good time next week on the show, whew, you're in for a good time. Dan Panic of Screeching Weasel, of the Queers, of of more. We get into all sorts of stuff with Dan next week on the show. One of the nicest people I've ever met in my entire life. Also the Groovy Ghoulies, and, and well, that's where I met him. 
when he was playing with the Groovy Ghoulies. But we'll get into that next week on the show. This is a great episode. And then also next week, because I've been, you know, so tardy in putting this thing out, uh, there will be a surprise episode, too. There's going to be a surprise episode. Maybe, actually, no, no, between this and the Dan episode, there will be a surprise episode, a number two with a huge guest that's going to pop up in the middle of the week this week. There. There, I'm putting it out there, okay? So get hyped, get amped. Last time I did this, it was Milo from the fucking Descendants, okay? You know, or, or, or John Joseph, you know, or, or, or you know, like, I, I got good surprises for you. That's what I do here. I'm not coming here with some no bullshit. You're going to open the box and find underwear or socks. No, you're going to find a fucking video game. You're going to find, like, a shit ton of cash or an interview with someone that was awesome that was on the show before. I don't know. Anyway, that's it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Go out there and make your own culture. Sign your organ donor cards. Please sign your organ donor cards. And uh, stay safe. Um, Anyone can do this shit. Thanks for listening. Bye.